All right, so my name is Britt Fuller. I am the pastor of Living Stones, uh, Piedras Vivas. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> but it's truly an honor to be here to share God's word with you this morning uh, and to share our heart um, as we are over the hill in Canoga Park and what God is doing there. And um, it's just amazing. And so I want to share with you three things, so three topics. One would be relationships, two would be the church, and then three would be missions. How do those things connect, and in some ways, how are those things interdependent? And so we're going to do that from the book of Colossians. So if you want, you can go ahead and turn to Colossians 3. We're going to be uh, in verse 9 through 11. But as we think through that, let me give you a little bit of background about the book of Colossians. Okay, so Colossians is all about Jesus. It's all about the supremacy of the person of Jesus Christ, and it's about the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. In one word, Colossians, if you look at it, it's about the gospel. And as we look at this King Jesus, and we read Colossians, and we study that, we get to see that we get to have relationship with Jesus. He has rescued us. He has brought us in. He has taken us from this domain of darkness and now transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Like that is an amazing thing that we can have relationship with the King of Kings. And he's brought us in and we have this place. And if you look at Colossians 3, at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about we've been raised with Jesus Christ. We have this place seated next to him. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be next to him. And that's a place of honor, right? We're going to be there with Jesus Christ. It's an honor to be there with him. But it's also this place of intimacy. We're next to him. We get to relate to him. We get to talk with him. We get to be right there, right there before him. But we think through that, and a lot of times we think about that, about me and about my life and about being there with Jesus. But I want to tell you, when we have that place with Jesus, we're not going to be alone. We're there with his body. We're there with each other. We're there with our brothers and sisters before the king. So we share this place. And if we share this place, you're part of Jesus, you're with this church. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's not so great. But you get, you're with Jesus, you're with this church too, okay? You have to be a part. You are a part of that. And so we are together as a church, have this relationships as a church, and then we as a church are living out this mission. We're to be on mission together. God has brought us together as a body to be on mission. And so as it says in chapter 2 of Colossians, it says, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, now walk in him. And he's saying not just walk in him by yourself, walk in him with the body, walk in him with other people around you. So that's what we're to do. And I remember almost five years ago, the first time I came to Los Angeles, we came out. Jose Luis Samasquita picked myself and my wife up. And I remember sitting in Todd's living room. And it was Jose Luis and Luz and Todd and Lisa. And I remember talking and sharing our heart and what God had placed on our hearts and what we might actually end up doing out here and what that would look like. And Todd says, well, we can promise you this one thing. We'll promise you a relationship. Come out here, and you can walk with us. That was it. There was nothing else involved. It was just relationship. I said, okay, we're packing up. We left Chicago. We came across the country, and we moved to Canoga Park. And we said, we get to be a part of Cornerstone. We get to be a part and in relationship with you guys. We get to be a part of this body. And in my head, that meant if we're going to be a part of this body, that means we're going to be on mission together. And if we're going to be on mission together, then we're going to be about going, therefore, and making disciples of all the nations, 
right? Look at the passage on the screen. We all know this, but this is Global Sunday, right? So we're going to read this passage. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. That's what we were excited about coming to do. And so when I think about the church, I want to give you guys this perspective. The next slide shows this statement. And I want you to look at this statement. The mission of the church is missions. And the mission of missions is the church. Hopefully you guys see how that's cyclical, how that goes back around. So if we, the mission of the church, us together in these relationships that we have with Jesus Christ, our mission is to go out, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And as we make disciples of all the nations, we're bringing them back in. They then become a part of the church. They become a part of our family. And then we go, therefore, and make disciples. And you see how that happens. So think through that as I'm talking through this message, as we consider this passage, that the mission of the church is missions. And the mission of missions is the church. And you guys believe that. I looked on your website. I haven't been here for three years, except to visit. But I looked at the missions page, and it says, missions is not just this program, right, for over there. It says the New Testament church, it didn't even have a missions program. The New Testament church was the missions program, right? That's what the church did. That's what the church was there for. And so my question is, how are we doing? I was sent out. We were sent out to Canoga Park to plant this church, Livingstones, Piedras Vivas. And it said, we're going to go, therefore, and make disciples in Canoga Park of all the nations. You guys are here making disciples of all the nations. And the question this morning is, well, how are we doing? How are we doing in those relationships that we have? How are we doing in those relationships that make up the church? And are those relationships then going out and making disciples of the nations? Are we living the truth according to Jesus Christ? Or are we living a lie? And when I say that we're living a lie, I don't mean that we're not telling each other the truth. I mean that are we living in a way that accurately represents Jesus Christ, that accurately represents our King? That's the question this morning. And we need a truthful perspective. And you probably have when you're going through life and you have a situation and I need to hear the truth and I go to these certain people, I know that they'll tell me the truth. They'll cut to the chase. They'll tell me the truth. For me, that's my kids. If I need to know the truth, I go to my kids. I have four kids. And I can ask them, I say, what color is Poppy's hair? <laughs> All right? And they say without a second thought, without giving any consideration, your, your hair is gray, Poppy. I said, my hair is great. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not yet 40, okay? My hair is great? Yeah. It's not like salt and pepper? And they say, salt and pepper, what's that? I'm mean, like, well, that's, you know, black and gray. They're like, well, it's mostly salt. There's a little bit of pepper. <laughs> they tell me the truth, right? And if we need to hear the truth, as the body of Christ, where should we go? We should go to his word. We should go to his word, we should listen to the truth, and we should sit before it and humble ourselves and be listeners of it. And we should let it cut to our hearts. It would get past the intentions of our hearts. It would get deep into us. And it would do something there through the Holy Spirit. And so in this passage, Paul is telling the church, he's like, do not lie to one another. Don't deceive one another. 
He's like, as you're in these, uh, in these relationships in the church, don't misrepresent Christ. And then through these relationships in the church, don't misrepresent Christ. Don't live a lie. So let me read the passage. Colossians 3, verse 9 through 11. And if I get stuck and if I pause, it's because when I preach on Sundays, there's someone standing with me simultaneously talking in Spanish. As I go, they go. We're, so I'm, it's really confusing just to hear my own voice. All right. So if anybody wants to, you know, to start speaking Spanish out there, go for it. But let me read this passage. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I don't want to live a lie. I don't want to misrepresent my king. I don't want us to do that. I want us to honor him. I want us to go and make disciples of all the nations. I want us to be about the mission, both here and there. I want us to be about that. And to do that, we're going to have to do two things. We're going to have to be true to our new selves, and we're going to have to be true to Jesus Christ. So first of all, true to our new selves. In these relationships in the church, we have to do that as we live with each other, true to our new selves. And you might be thinking, my new self, well, that's about me. I want you guys to let go of the singular view of self. We're not there with Jesus Christ by ourselves. We're there together as a church. We're there together as his body. When he says self, he's talking about this plural self, the church. Okay, it's both. In this plural church, this self, the church, we're going to be putting off our old self and we're going to be putting on this new self. As his body, together, with each other, that's how we live it out. Look at verse 9 in the, in the middle of verse 10. Do not lie to one another. He's talking about each of us in the church, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. In the first part of verse 10, and have put on the new self. That's us together. We're supposed to do that in relationship, together, as the church. We're supposed to be real with each other. We're supposed to be authentic with each other. We're supposed to be vulnerable. And we're supposed to go through this process and this slow process of seeing God change us. And even as I say that, that's not something that naturally I want to do. I don't want to be with you guys. I don't want to be with my body and let them see all of my issues and let them look into my life and let them be a part of what God is doing in me. I don't want to show them my true self. I want to show them my best self. And so this is what I do. So I'm bivocational. I work at the hospital in Thousand Oaks, and I get to wear a tie, or I have to wear a tie to work. And so I don't like to have my tie on. It's the last thing I put on. I drive to Thousand Oaks. I, I love my drive to go from the valley out to Thousand Oaks. It gives me time to think, quietness every day. And so I get into the parking deck, and I've got to go be Britt, the director. And I put on my tie. I didn't think about this. I don't have a mic when I have my tie. And I think about, I'm about to go in and be Britt, the director. I'm a therapist. What am I going to be? I need to put on my best self. I need to go before everyone and make sure they see the person that I want them to see. You've got a problem? No problem. We'll fix it. Anything else? A surgeon is upset? No problem. Let me come and handle that. We'll take care of it. I won't get upset. I'm not going to respond to you. I'm just going to put my best foot forward. And I can do that for eight hours sometimes as long as people are looking. But do we do that in the church? Do we do that with each other? 
Do we enter this building? Do we enter each other's homes that same way? Do we just pull up the tie? Do we just put on our best self? I'm not going to show you my true self. I'm just going to show you what I know you think you should see. And is that how we operate within the church? And we come in and we hold our breath, and I'm going to walk through the lobby. I'm going to greet a few people. I'm going to sit in this chair. I'm going to look for it. And then when it's done, I'm going to walk out. And I'm going to go back and get to my car, and I'm going to go home, or I'm going to have lunch. And maybe once a week we'll get together in a home. Maybe once a week we'll do some Bible study. But again, that's if nothing else more important that I'd rather do comes up. Is that how we approach it? Because we can do that. We can put on the best self in superficial, temporary relationships. But we can't do that with family. We have to engage. We have to get involved in each other's lives. And as we do that, it gets messy. As we do that, it gets frustrating. As we do that, it gets difficult. If you are a part of a family, if you grew up with brothers and sisters, you understand this. You experience this. Think back to growing up in your home. All right? These are my kids, hopefully. I've got four. Karina on the right, my oldest. In the middle, Mariana on the left, Oran. And then on the bottom, Annalise. Those are my kids. And if I ask Karina, I say, Karina, how's, how are things going? Oh, they're good, they're good. So what are some of the, what's the most difficult relationship in your life? She just turned 13. Oh, it's Mariana and Oran and Annalise. <laughs> and then I'm out with Mariana. I say, Mariana, what, what are the most difficult relationships in your life? Karina, Oran, and Annalise. <laughs> this keeps going. And I say, Oran, what are the, I mean, poor guy, he's got three sisters. What are the most difficult relationships in your life? Oh, Karina, Mariana, and Annalise. And then I ask Annalise, who are the most difficult? Karina, Mariana, Oran, and Isabella. That's her cousin that lives down in the courtyard. All right? <laughs> like, and they say, I'm like, well, why is it so difficult? And it's like, well, they come in my space, and they're in my room, and I have to share the room with them. And, and then they're in my, my toys. And, like, they make life so difficult when they're all up in my space. And, and it just frustrates me, and, 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 and they hinder me. And I can't be what I'm supposed to be because they're messing me up all the time. That's what it should look like in the church. Are we engaged in relationships in the church in that way? Where we're up in each other's space, where you frustrate me, where you hinder me at times, but we stay together because we're family. We stay together because that's how God has designed it. And you might say, okay, okay, I'll give it a shot. I'll give that a try. I'll go home. I'll try and engage in some relationships, and I'll do that for a little while, Britt, as long as someone doesn't frustrate me, as long as someone doesn't sin against me, say something rude, but then I'm done. And I would tell you that's the wrong attitude to have. That's the wrong perspective to have. Because not only are these relationships intimate and they're deep, but they have to be over time. They continue. There has to be a commitment there. If you look in the middle of verse 10, it says, which is being renewed. So this old self we put off, this new self that we've put on together, which is being renewed. It's in process, okay? It doesn't happen overnight. It's something we have to remain in, something we have to stay in, these relationships. Because we're renewed together. I'm in process. You are in process. We are in process together, and we have to continue in it. In many ways, it is a life long commitment. And as we do that, expect there's going to be changes. 
expect that things are not going to stay the same as they are right now. And I have seen this when you think about a lifelong commitment. When I talk to couples who are going to be married, and you hear the guy's perspective and the woman's perspective, and they're very two distinct perspectives. And you talk about, well, so what's your marriage going to look like? And they give these answers, and it's funny to listen to how it's going to be in their minds. But the guy always says, my wife, she's never going to change. Man, she's going to be just as physically beautiful. She's, she's, she's enamored with me right now. She's always going to be in love with me. Like there's not going to be a day that she's just not just thinking about me. She's never going to change. And the wives, they say, well, yeah, I love my husband. I mean, he's a great guy, but we're going to get married, and there are a few things that I'm going to change in him. <laughs> and guys, we all know that's a good thing, right? But that's the wife's perspective. It's like, I- I've got to make some changes in this guy. And I would tell you that the wife in the case of the church is much more correct. That's, that's normal, right? Our wives are usually correct. So we're going to be changed. I've been married to my wife for 15 years. She is not the same woman that I married 15 years ago. It is incredible how God has changed her, how God has grown her, how God has matured her, how God has chipped away at this old self, and he's replaced with this new self that's in Christ. And I get to see that, and I get to be a witness to that. And it is my prayer that my wife rolls over and looks at me in bed, and she's scared sometimes because she's like, I'm sleeping with a new man. Who is this guy in my bed? He's not the same guy that I married. He's changed. God is doing something in him. And she'd roll over again a couple years later. She's like, there's another man in my bed. Who is this guy? But I should be changing. God should be sanctifying me. He should be making me different. And that should be happening to us together as the church. But it only happens if we're in relationships with each other that are deep and that are intimate and that continue on and on. That we're committed to them. That we're not going to walk away So I want you to look. I want you to look to your left and right. Seriously, look. These are the people who are going to know the worst things about you. These are the people that are going to probably, that should frustrate you more than anyone else. But these are the people that are going to be witness to and watching you and be a part of you being transformed and you being changed. And you're going to get to see that in them. And that's what that relationship should look like. That's what it should look like in the church, that we get to be a part of that. And that is God's design, and it is amazing. It sounds messed up. It sounds completely upside down, but it's amazing. But we have to walk in that. So we have to be true to our new selves. Next, we have to be true to Christ. If you look on in verse 10, the last part of verse 10, it says we're being renewed and this knowledge after the image of its creator. We're being renewed in this perfect knowledge, this understanding of Jesus Christ, who his character is, what he has done, and we're renewed in his image. We're to be renewed and made into this new self together as a body, and the more we walk in that, the more we're in those relationships, the more we're with him, then he's going to make us look like him. We're going to look like him together as his body. And you might be saying, well, Britt, I understand this idea of relationship that we have with God and now this relationship we have with each other and we're to live that out as the church. But where does missions fit into this? Where, is, where are the nations? Where are the ethne? Did you pick the right passage to preach on today? 
Because I don't see it. I don't see where it's coming. And I want you to look in the next verse, in verse 11, it says here. Where is here? Here is here. Here is in the church. Paul is saying here in this church, as he's writing to the Colossians, here in your church. This is where this is going to occur. And he begins to describe the church. Not over there, but the church here. And so I want us to think about not the church over there, but the church here. And are we the church here growing according to the image of Christ? And then he lists, let me read from verse 11. He says, here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So here in the church, and he gives this list, it's a cultural list, it's a practical list, it's a lingual list, it's an economic list, and he lists out all of the differences that can occur in those things. And he says, you know, we know about these differences. These are differences that are significant. These are differences that hinder our relationships, and it's difficult to be in relationship with someone that's not like me. And he lists these differences out for us. But what Paul is saying is, I want you to look around in the church, and I want you to realize that you are a part of the body with those kind of people. Those people. That's who you're family with. That's who you're to walk with. That's who you're to have this intense relationship with. Those kind of people. Not my kind of people, those kind of people. Here in the church, that's what it's to be. Despite our differences. And so I want to walk through those differences that exist here in the church. For us to understand and try and understand that for our context. First, he talks about there's neither Greek nor Jew. He's talking about ethnicity. He's talking about our race. He's talking about our backgrounds. And in the biblical times, you were either Jew or you were not. You were a Jew or you were a Gentile. And the two were separate. The two were distinct. And the Gentile could not be a Jew, okay? It was a huge issue for the church as the church gets together. It was so big that, that God had to come to Peter in a vision and show him that, that, that the people are not common and people are not unclean. He's like, these Gentiles around you, they could potentially be part of your family. It's not going to be just Jews. It's going to be these Gentiles as well. Those people, those other people, they could be a part of your family. They could be a part of your relationships. And then he goes on and he says, circumcised and uncircumcised. Clean or unclean. This is about our practices, our religious practices specifically. And he's saying, regardless of their practices, regardless of, of how, that's not how I worship, that's not what it looks like for me, that we would be together. This was a big deal too. Peter, who God had come to and said, no people are common, no people are unclean, he believed it. And he went out. And we see in Galatians 2 that he's there with Paul at the church in Antioch. And there's all these Gentiles around. And Peter, a Jew, is explained to be sitting at the table having fellowship with his brothers and sisters that are Gentiles. And that's a huge deal, that this Jew would sit down at the table with Gentiles. And he would be having table fellowship with them. He's like, he got it. Peter gets it. Like, no, these are my brothers and sisters. These are my family members. I'm going to interact with them. But what happens when the Jews come from James, when they come from Jerusalem, it says that Peter withdrew from the table. He withdrew from the Gentiles. He backed up. He went back to his old culture and his old ways. He's like, no, no, no. 
And what does Paul do? He, he confronts him. And he says, that's not according to the gospel. That's out of step with the gospel. And he confronts Peter. These practices are huge. It was a big deal for the church. We need reminders over and over again. The next is barbarian and Scythian. Okay? Barbarian is simply someone in that time that did not speak either Greek or Latin. The word actually comes from the way that it sounded when they would speak this crazy tongue. Bar, 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 bar. What are they saying? They don't even make sense. And what are they saying about me? I wish they would just learn Greek. I wish they'd just learn Latin. I wish they'd just learn English. I wish they would just do that because that's getting on my nerves. And they're so unrefined. I mean, they're not educated. And then those Scythians, the Scythians were like the worst of the worst. They didn't speak Greek or Latin, and they were just disgusting. They were nasty. They were vile. They were the worst of the worst. So not only did they not learn English, but, you know, they're probably undocumented. They didn't come here legally. And then slave and free. This is about differences in class about differences in power, about differences in their social standing. It's a tough list to work through. And as I think through, and as we understand the reality of the church in the United States, and I look at the church, it's hard to digest. Because we have made God white, We've made him conservative, we've made him English-speaking, and we've made him middle class. That's what God looks like. That's the image that we're displaying. And I don't know that that, as I see in this book, is a correct, is an accurate image of Jesus Christ. Are we living a lie? Are we reflecting him honestly and accurately as who he is? And so I want to walk through each of those and show you practically what that looks like. The slide that comes up is about ethnicity in the church. So this is the church here, okay? Not the church there. This is the church here. 94.5%. That huge, huge is not even a slice, right? That's the pie. 94.5% of the churches in the U.S., Christian churches, are mono-ethnic. They're white, they're black, they're Latino, they're Korean, whatever it might be, they're primarily that one thing. 94.5% are monoethnic. And you can look at those two small slices at the top that make up 5.5%. One of that, one of those slices are actually churches that are in transition. They weren't trying to be multi-ethnic. It's just that the neighborhood is changing. This used to be a white neighborhood. Now it's a black neighborhood. The church is in transition. We were a white church. Now we're going to be a black church. We were a black church. Now we're going to be a Hispanic church. It's not intentional. It's not according to Christ. It's because, well, the neighborhood around us is changing, and that's what it looks like, and there's really nothing we can do about it. 2.75%. Less than three out of every hundred churches is actually multi-ethnic in the United States. And that's not even considering language. That's not considering class. That's not considering culture. It's just 
race, just ethnicity, just their backgrounds. That's how we gather as the church. That's the display that we're putting on of Jesus Christ. The next, culture. And you might say, well, people can have their culture. They can have their culture privately. They can have it and they can practice it in their home and whatever they want to do in their home. That's great. But when they come to church, we need to be like the majority culture. When you come to church, you can be of another culture, but you need to act like us. You need to act like the majority culture when you're here, when you're in church. Those people should be assimilating to us. Those people should be changing, not me. Because our culture is more biblical, right? Our culture, it's more Christ-like, right? So why wouldn't they want to be like our culture? The next is language. And you say, no way. No way that we could sing in English and Spanish. No way that that will work. No way that we could have preaching in English and Spanish or interpretation. What would that look like? That's just too much. Logistically, that's too hard of a challenge. For me to be in a relationship with somebody that doesn't speak my heart language, there's no way pragmatically that that will work. Because interpretation, translation, like that's a terrible inconvenience. It's such a distraction. Like I couldn't even focus when we were singing because they were singing in Spanish and it was so hard for me. It was so distracting. Even though I'm pretty thankful for translation and interpretation because the Bible was in Hebrew and Greek and I get to read it every day in English. And when you come here on a Sunday, you get to hear, if English is your heart language, you get to hear the word of God interpreted and preached to you in your heart language, not in Greek, not in Hebrew. We get to benefit from that, to hear the word of God in our heart language. But are we willing for others to hear it in their heart language? Are we willing to deal with that inconvenience and deal with that distraction? And then class, it's a huge issue for us today. If I were to pick out these that actually separate the church, class is huge, our social standing. But we can hide behind that because we can have ministry to the poor. We can have ministry to those people. And I can minister down to them, but I don't have to walk with them. I don't have to actually have them as a part of my family. I can just go and I can give handouts and I can do things, but I don't need to be involved really in relationship. So we, we take care of the poor, but are you in relationship with the poor? Are you walking with the poor? That that's the difference, that we would have no distinction. And you might say, well, Britt, this is all biblical. That's great. And you're obviously excited about it. But how does that work? How does that practically work its way out? I want to show you guys our vision statement from Livingstone's Piedras Vivas. We read this every Sunday. This is not what we are, okay? We are in process. But this is what we desire that God would make us, that we be reconciled with God vertically, and we'd be reconciling with each other horizontally. And as we do that, we'd be multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-class, but we'd be about the one thing, the gospel. Because we're about the gospel, because we're about this one thing, because we're a gospel-centered community, then we can be multi-ethnic, we can be multi-class, and we can be multilingual, and that's what the image of Christ should look like that we wouldn't be living a lie, that we wouldn't be showing the world something that Jesus is not. This is his church here, and this is his church there. And visitors will come on a Sunday morning, and it's crazy. I know it's crazy. It's English, Spanish. We're going at the same time. Things are going back and forth. There's an interpreter walking around with a microphone. 
And they come up to me afterwards and they say, you know what, I really appreciate your heart, Britt. I see what you guys are trying to do here. And, you know, and I commend you for that. But can I share some advice with you? How this would be you know, more comfortable, better received. It's a little it's distracting. And you think, well, that's, you know, we're just visitors. I sit down and I talk to pastors sometimes. And they say, oh, obviously, uh, this, no, it's biblical. I see, we'll go through these different passages. I'll take them through. Like, How can we dismiss this from the, oh, no, I see it. I see it. You're right, Brett. It's biblical, but it won't work. It's not effective. It's not convenient. It's not very efficient. Your people, they're, they're not going to be comfortable in that type of environment. And then they wait. And at the end of the conversation, they pull out their back pocket and they play this trump card. And they say, if you do this, if you, if you try and look like that, the church is not going to grow. You're not going to get the numbers. How, how are you going to grow the church like that? I say, that's not the church I'm trying to grow. I can't help but look at that and see well, what you're talking about as a club. I want to grow the church. I want to have this place where we are messed up we don't look the same, we don't think the same, but we love Jesus Christ. And we operate in relationships, and we live with each other, and we care for each other, and we put on this demonstration of the image of our creator, Jesus Christ. And he is made known, and he is glorified. It's not about me, it's about him. It's not about us, it's not about our ethnicity, it's not about our language, it's not about our class, it's about Jesus Christ. And are we showing him, are we proclaiming him to the world? So are we making disciples of the nations here? Am I making disciples of the nations across the hill? Are you making disciples of the nations here in Simi Valley? Are we building the church in the image of Christ? Are we building the church in the image with the people that look the most like us? We've got to come to the truth of God's word. We've got to let it change us. Let's be about discipleship. Let's make disciples of the nations. Let's be about missions both here and there. We can't separate those two, but let's do that by being true to our new selves and let's be true to Jesus Christ. Relationships and the church and through the church being about mission. And I don't know exactly what that looks like for you guys. I'm not even sure what that looks like for us across the hill. But it starts with relationships. If you're not in relationship, if you're not reaching out in relationships to those who don't look like me and think like me and act like me and do everything like I do, you will never make disciples of the nations. And so look at your body. Engage with those in the body that are not like you. Let the gospel break down those barriers that you can walk with each other like family together in this body. Walk down the hall and have relationships with those in Piedra Anguilar. Walk outside your doors in your neighborhood and seek relationships with those who don't make sense to you. Come across the hill with me. 
support the church as they reach the nations globally, but it starts with relationships. You have to be willing to walk in that. So I'm going to introduce Trent Brown. He is one of my elders, and uh, he's going to share with you this idea of relationships and in and through the church and what that has actually looked like for him. I've given you kind of the theology and the perspective of the church, but I want him to share in regards to relationship. What does this look like for him as he has walked through this? Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here this morning and to be able to share with you. So, by way of background, our church is located right next to Lanark Park. And for my entire life, I've lived about two miles west of Lanark Park. I've grown up in this tiny little pocket of West Hills. Lanark Park is right there in, in Canoga Park. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the area, Topanga Canyon runs north and south, right down the west part of the valley. And there's Lanark Park, straddles Topanga Canyon right there east on Topanga Canyon. And the interesting thing about that area, Lanark Park, that one mile square radius, it's the most densest census tract in Los Angeles. Right there, those row of apartments, the most dense census tract in Los Angeles, one of the most dense census tracts in California and in the entire nation. And the amazing thing is that one-third of the residents there in Lanark Park, next to the church, in those apartments, are below the poverty line. Think about that. The densest census tract, all these people, one-third of the population is below the poverty line. About three-quarters of the people living there are at 200% and below the poverty line. You can barely raise a family of four living like that. It's the neighborhood of the working poor. Now, that stands in stark contrast to where I live, just two miles, two miles west of Lanark Park. West of Topanga Canyon, it's like this, there's this great divide. There's virtually nobody below the poverty level. It's a less dense population. Mostly white, upper middle class. And for years, for years, as I was going to Cornerstone, I'd drive right down Roscoe, past Lanark Park, up over the hill into Simi Valley. Never really noticing Lanark Park, Never really even considering the plight of the working class poor that are right there. I drive two minutes. I'm in another world. And because of this socioeconomic divide, as I was growing up, I never went to Lanark Park. My dad would always say, don't go there. There's gang activity. There's drug dealers. You'd read in the paper every now and then about people getting shot at Lanark Park. And I remember six years ago, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Naomi, who was about five at the time, we're driving down to Penga Canyon. The park's right there, and she looks at the park. She goes, Daddy, why don't we ever go to that park? I said, Naomi, we're never going to that park. <laughs> we are never going to that park. And I've learned never say never, by the way. 
But little did I know that several years later that the Lord would knit my heart together with love, with Britt and his wife, Media, and with the church at Lanark Park, and that he would give me a heart for the people in the area. And it's been a humbling experience to be a part of Living Stones. I've sat across the table in dining rooms with one family where the man is working so hard. He's working so many hours trying to provide financial counseling. He could barely stay awake because he's working so many hours and can barely make ends meet. And I go through his budget and I go through the expenses. And the only thing to cut is the guy watches two or three Redbox movies a month. You see, the Dave Ramsey financial planning doesn't work for the poor. You can't say, okay, cut your mortgage from 30 years to 15 to pay it off quicker, save 10%, put money in your 401k plan here and pay off your debt. What do you say to somebody who's working as hard as they possibly can? They could barely make it. Now, the average person living in that area, you're a first-generation immigrant or second-generation immigrant, if you're lucky, you have two jobs. I've seen this time and time again. The first job you have is kind of like your anchor, your base job. And you're working 38 hours a week. I thought to myself, why are there all these people who are working 38 hours a week? Why not 40 hours a week? Well, once you reach 40 hours a week, you're full-time. Then you get sick pay. You get vacation pay. You get better health care. And then that second job is usually after hours, where you're working 25 hours a week. Now, as long as you have those two jobs, and everything's going well, you could pay the bills at the end of each month. Everything's fine. You got food in the fridge. You can pay for gas. You can make a car payment. But what happens, and I've seen this, what happens when you wake up in the morning and you're puking your guts out? And you got a fever. You don't feel good. You got to decide that morning, what are you going to do? Am I going to go to work to pay the bills? Am I going to stay home? Now, if I stay home, I'm not going to have enough money to make the rent because I don't get vacation pay. I don't get sick pay. Me, if I'm sick, I go to the doctor. I get a month of, a month of sick pay, vacation pay, all that stuff. It never crosses my mind when I wake up and I'm throwing up and I feel sick. But when you're in that predicament, it's a very real fear. And I'll tell you what you do. I'll tell you what you do when you have to stay home. You don't get paid enough. You're short $200 on the rent. You go to the payday loan place. The average payday loan rolls over eight times. And by the time that payday loan is done, you wind up paying 400% interest on average. And there are more payday loan places than there are 7-Elevens. Right here, right here in the San Fernando Valley. The poor are being predatorized by an unjust system. 
the very first family that Britt and Nydia met, Nydia is Britt's wife, they formed a relationship with when they, when they moved into the apartments by Lanark. They're in that very same predicament. The husband has been working two jobs. The wife cleans houses during the week. And we've seen time and time again how he's working so much, the car will break down. Can't make it. Gets fired. And because of their relationship with this couple, the church has been able to form relationships with them. Different facets of their lives, they interact with other people in the church. And from time to time, I've been able to sit across the table to help provide financial counseling, and we've thought about, how do you get out of this trap? How do you get out of this cycle? And the church has met their needs time and time again over a four-year period. And we've been sharing the gospel this whole time. And about a month ago, Britt and I were sitting at their dining room table. We were going over the finances. He had lost his second job. Again, working at a gas station. And I'll never forget, Britt was sharing, you know, you, you're in this, this cycle, this cycle of poverty. And the church wants to help. We want to come alongside you and help you raise out of that poverty. And it's a long-term thing. But more importantly, we want to help you with the spiritual brokenness that's there. Because although there's this physical poverty, there's also spiritual poverty, and that's really what we're more concerned with. And the church has been here to meet your needs and to come alongside you on the physical side, but you're on your way to hell. We desperately want to see you follow Christ and become part of the church. And in that moment, I could see the man's wife. Tears were welling up in her eyes. You could see the Holy Spirit working in her. And she has seen the church there for four years, coming alongside them, walking alongside them, forming these relationships, meeting their needs financially. And two weeks later, she was baptized in my jacuzzi. And that's real. And that takes time. And I'm talking to people, I'm sitting across the table from people who have completely different backgrounds than me. And one thing that I've noticed is that the reality, the reality of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8 is right here in my face. You know what Paul says? He says, those with an abundance should give to those in need. And then when you're in need, those who have an abundance will share with you. And he says there should be an equality among the saints. Doesn't that sound anti-American? Now, it's one thing to hear that, to sit in the pews and hear a pastor preach on that, and you think, yeah, that makes sense to me. Those with an abundance should give to those in need. You cut a check for 100 bucks, you put it in the offering plate. I've sat across the table from a guy who... I make as much as he does in one month than what he makes for an entire year. And he's working as hard or harder than I am. That reality becomes real. Yeah, Paul says those with an abundance should give to those in need. And God's telling me, okay, I've given you an abundance. Are you going to share that with those who have need? Do you really believe? 
Are you really willing to give some of your personal security up for those who are barely making it, for those who are on the fringe of society? And I'll confess, as a church, we don't really have any idea what we're doing. It's a scary thought. And we've tried different things to help build relationships with those in the community. Two years ago, my wife and I decided, you know what? We're going to put our kids in soccer at Lanark Park, and I'm going to coach soccer. Now, I know nothing about soccer. (laughs) I've never played soccer in my entire life. I don't even know the positions in soccer. (laughs) And the kids in that community, the Hispanic community, know soccer. You know, so I'm watching stuff on YouTube and trying to learn different things. And during one of the practices, the kids were huddled together over here. And they were kind of laughing. And one of the ringleaders, this kid, Freddie, was looking over at me, and they were laughing. And I walk up to him. I say, guys, we've got to get rolling here. Let's go. We've got to practice. And Freddie goes, a coach? Me and the guys were thinking. And we don't think you've ever played soccer a day in your life. <laughs> I said, you're right. But you know what? Three weeks later, in broken English, Freddie's dad comes up to me. And he goes, Coach, I'd be honored if you can come to my son's First Holy Communion celebration. And there I was, with my wife, in the parking structure of a low-income housing unit, Celebrating with Freddie his first Holy Communion with people who can't even speak English. I'm the tall, goofy, white guy there. (laughs) And in that moment, the mission of the church became real to me. It was tangible. I can't have relationships with people that look, that feel, or that are completely different than me. El gringo. I remember distinctly the first time I met Britt and Nydia in their place. We were doing the home church thing in the, in the valley through, through Cornerstone, and Matt Moore had come to us, and he said, listen, we've got this couple, Britt and Nydia, they want to start a church in the park, and we would like for your group to join with them. It's okay. My wife and I go over to their apartment, and I remember thinking, these guys are nuts. You're going to take your family. He's got a good job. Smart guy. College educated. And you're going to move into this little tiny apartment right across from Lanark Park. And I knew really nothing about the area because I'd stayed away. He's the only white guy living in the entire apartment building. Think, Man, this is, this, is, this is kind of phenomenal. And as we were leaving their apartment that night, He goes, I'll walk you to your car. We go out their apartment. We walk through the park where my car was parked on the other side. And I was looking around. And something hit me. You know what? I could live like a missionary right here. I don't have to move. I don't have to change where I live. I can do it right here, right now. 
And the reason why I can do it is because the church is there. Because the church is like this yeast in this dough that's spreading. And it's been wonderful. And I would like to thank you, Britt and Nydia, for being faithful to the calling that God has given you. Because we've been able to participate in that and grow. And um, I just love you guys. Thank you. Well, if you want to know the real truth about Brittany, I'll tell you the real truth later. No, real, see, let me just say something about this. I love the fact that God allows Cornerstone to engage itself in all kinds of different ministries. And one of the ones that I'll still never forget is when they first came and met with us and said, hey, we want to plant a church through Cornerstone. And they had no clue what they were signing up for. They're learning what they were signing up for. It's on the, on the job training, but God just used them powerfully. Just one thing before you, you go, just to connect the dot on this. Our goal, if you remember right, over the last two weeks, was Paul's statement. I became all things to all people that I might save some. God is asking us to join Jesus Christ incarnationally, to even at great cost to ourselves, to see the greatest message ever of gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ advanced. And that's not just for Brit and Nydia. It's for all of us. All of us get this huge privilege of joining God in what he's doing. And so I hope today all of you leave and go, man, I need to think through life differently on all levels of how it is that I join God in what he's doing. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to stand up. Real quick, stand up. And some of you are old. Gosh, watching you get up. Wow. There's a lot of things going on that I, they wanted me to do announcements on. There's a Woven Hearts thing in which, uh, when is that? Saturday when? Tonight's what I meant. I was testing you. Tonight at 6.30. See, but now you remember it, don't you? See? We got that going on. If you're a woman in here, we'd love to have you uh, join up and figure out how it is that you can become all things to all people so that you might save some. We've got info cards that we need you to sign. But if it's not about becoming all things to all people so that we might save some, who cares about info cards? We've got also Saturday night service that we're going to be starting next week. No, 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 time out, time out, time out. If it's not about becoming all things to all people so that we might save some, stay home. We've got even an adoption thing coming up, which we're going to be doing over at Grace Baptist Church, in which we would love to have some of you that would have a heart for the orphan. Why? Because we need to become all things to all people so that we might save some. You see the rhythm here? You with me? So in light of a father who in immense love decided through the work of his son to make you one of his very own sons and daughters... In light of the son who came and embodied himself in flesh, taking on humanity so that he might die and pay a penalty that none of us ever could. 
and he rose again next to the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us right now. And in light of the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to truly become all things to all people that we might save some, in the name of that God, let's go love people like he's called us to. Amen? All right, we'll see you. Have a good one.